Strange Stories UK here again with Series 2, Episode 14. Uh, these is uh, three short stories about um, with a paranormal aspect. The first of the three stories is called Premonitions of the Aberfan Disaster. 9.15am on Friday the 21st of October 1966, a massive coal tip of waste rock or slag slid down a mountainside, killing 144 people. 128 of the dead were schoolchildren from the Pantglass Junior School. These big slag heaps had been placed on high ground above Avavan, a Welsh mining village. Of its population of about 5,000, many worked for the National Coal Board, who were the main employer in the area. The slag heaps had been placed over natural springs, which had made these mountains of waste rock unstable. On that Friday, after days of rain, a 30-foot wall of black sludge, about half a million tonnes of coal waste, slid down the valley, triggered by a build-up of water at speeds of about 20 miles an hour. This uprooted trees and smothered any buildings that were in its way. It was said that few people could actually see the landslide, but everyone could hear it, roaring sound that it made. Some of those present at Abavan later said it sounded like a plane was about to crash. Once the sludge came to a halt, it solidified and there was silence. People surviving the tragedy remembered a thundering noise which grew and grew. The lights in the classrooms of Pantglass Primary School that were suspended from the ceiling began to swing to and fro. One teacher ordered the children in the class to get under their desks. The survivors say that everyone was terrified. One pupil remembers looking out of the window as it was engulfed in blackness. Another remembers waking up being unable to move with a dead girl's head on his shoulder. He remembers screaming, which faded away as air pockets were used up and people suffocated. One of the survivors later talked of the difficulties he suffered after all his friends were killed. There were only four people in his class that survived. He said that he didn't go out and play because those that had lost children couldn't bear to see children play, and he felt survivor's guilt. Several local people had publicly expressed concerns that one day the coal tip may collapse. A local councillor called Gwyneth Williams had concerns of a landslip. And in the early 1960s, the deputy borough engineer wrote a number of letters expressing concern. But all complaints were ignored by the National Coal Board, who kept dumping tailings onto the slag heaps. Incidentally, Later, although a public inquiry put the blame on the National Coal Board, no one was ever punished or lost their jobs as a result of the disaster. The remaining tips were only removed after a fight by the Abervan residents and resistance from the National Coal Board. Government papers released after the 30-year rule in 1997 gave the opinion that the National Coal Board spin-doctored its way out of trouble. The suddenness of the occurrence and the fact that so many children were killed made it an unprecedented disaster. Mr J.C. Barker was a consultant psychiatrist based at Shelton Hospital at Shrewsbury. 
It was a mental health hospital that was designed and built as a lunatic asylum in 1845. Barger thought that as the Aberfan disaster was so unusual, there may have been people in the UK that had a premonition, some forewarning of the disaster. Just a side note here, Shelton Hospital, where Mr Barker worked, and which closed in 2012, had its own disaster. In February 1968, a fire occurred in the female lock ward of the hospital, killing 24 patients. Uh, nobody was held responsible for this either. Anyhow, Mr Barker, in conjunction with Mr Peter Fairley, who was the science correspondent of the London Evening Standard, launched an appeal on the 28th of October 1966, requesting people that had any foreknowledge of the disaster to communicate with him, describing their experiences. Other papers and magazines put out their appeal, and 76 were replied and passed on to Mr Barker. Although the responses came from all parts of the UK, the majority were from London and the home counties. The Psycho-Physical Research Unit at Oxford launched a similar appeal in conjunction with the national newspapers, which resulted in a further 200 people claiming to have some foreknowledge of the Diabavan disaster. Barker concentrated on the 76 responses he received, and did not include any reports of people who felt their survival was partly due to a premonition which they felt had to stay aw- that they caused them to stay away from the disaster area. The results of the inquiry. Of the 76 letters, 60 were considered as worthy of further investigation. As 16 were so vague and indefinite, there was no real link with Abavan. 36 of the letters were from people who had dreamt of the disaster. The remainder claimed to have had a vision of the disaster or parts of it, or developed a sense of deep unease before the tragedy occurred. Among the dreams were the following examples. A Mrs G Sidcup, aged 54, dreamt of screaming children buried by an avalanche of coal in a mining village. She woke up screaming and related the experience to friends before the event had taken place. This was quite a common dream amongst those who had replied, with variations such as screaming children in a black slimy substance. Some people dreamt of the name Abavan, and Mrs E Sheffield, aged 57, had a dream of children in a Welsh national costume going to heaven. She had the dream 12 hours before the event, and this was confirmed by her husband. Similar dreams of children engulfed in black mud, trees and logs, hurtling down a hillside in black mud amidst screams for help and nightmares of being smothered in deep blackness, were also reported. Sybil Brown of Brighton woke up gasping for air. She had a nightmare of a child screaming in a telephone booth, while another child was walking towards it, followed by a black billowing mess. Not all of these dreams were confirmed by witnesses, but they were considered genuine by Mr Barker. This is in a little more detail. We can start at case one. This case was confirmed by the local minister and parents of the child who died, called Earl May Jones, aged 10. She was an attractive, dependable child who attended Panglass School. She was said not to have been given to imagination. 
but a fortnight before the disaster she had said to her mother, Mummy, I'm not afraid to die. Her mother asked why she was so concerned about dying. She replied that she wasn't concerned, as she would be with her friends, Peter and June. The day before the disaster, she said to her mother, Mummy, let me tell you about my dream last night. Her mother answered, No, I don't have time now, tell me later. The child replied, No, Mummy, you must listen now. I dreamt that I was going to school, but there was no school there. Something black had come all over it. The next day she left for school, less happy as she usually was. She was to be buried in a communal grave with Peter on one side and June on the other. This being at parental request. Case number two. Mrs C. Milton of Plymouth. She wrote that she'd seen the disaster the night before it happened and had told a neighbour about her dream before the news was broadcast. She said that she saw an old schoolhouse nestling in a valley, then a Welsh miner, then an avalanche of coal hurtling down a hillside. At the bottom of the mountainside of hurtling coal, she saw a little boy with a long fringe looking terrified to death. Then for a while she saw the rescue operations taking place. She had the idea that the little boy had survived but was grief-stricken. Mrs Milden had described her vision as at a private circle meeting held in a church on the 20th of October, 1966. And this was confirmed in writing by six people. Mrs Milden's neighbour testified that Mrs Milden had told her about her vision at 8.30am on the 21st of October, 1966. Then Mrs Milden continued, Now this is probably even stranger. While looking at the TV programme on Sunday after the disaster, called The Mountain That Moved, I saw a little boy who looked terrified and the rescuer had been wearing a distinctive hat, the same as in my dream. It took me some time to get over the shock. It was not the first time that I had foreseen events before they had occurred, although Abavan was the most outstanding. Case number three, a Mrs M. H., age 54, of Barnstable. The night before the Abavan disaster, I dreamt of a lot of children in two rooms. After a while, some of the children joined some others in an oblong-shaped room, and they were in different little groups. At the end of the oblong-shaped room, there was long pieces of wood or wooden bars, which the children were trying to get through or get over, and every so often one got through and seemed to slip away. I was watching from the corridor. The next thing in my dream were hundreds of people running to the bars. The looks on their faces were terrible. Some were crying and holding handkerchiefs to their faces. It frightened me so much that I woke up. I wanted to get out of bed and telephone my son and his wife to tell them to take special care of my two granddaughters. When I did get up, it was 6.45am. I told my brother-in-law, who was up, that I had this dreadful dream and was going to telephone my son but he said it was too early. I thus waited until 8.45 before phoning, when I told my son that the children seemed like schoolchildren. The dream upset me throughout the day. I heard about Abavan at about 5.15pm. Mrs M.H. dream was verified in detail by her daughter-in-law, and Mrs P.H., who confirmed that she'd phoned before 9am on the day of the disaster asking her to take special care of her daughters.
disaster and who responded were aged between 10 to 73. Women predominated over men at a ratio of 5 to 1. The clarity of dreams varied from relative instinctiveness to an accurate pictorial impression. In some instances the dreams were so distinct that it seemed that the dreamer had a glimpse of the disaster beforehand. Many correspondents claim to have experienced premonitions before other catastrophes and before significant events in their own lives. The vast majority of those who responded had nothing to do with the disaster. They had no relatives or friends involved and most had never heard of Abavan. Several of the correspondents reported that they had never had such a dream before. For many the dream made a deep impression on them and haunted them for some time afterwards. In 1965, G.W. Lambert enumerated five conditions, all of which were necessary to establish any connection between a dream and a future event. These were, number one, the dream should be told to a credible witness before the event it relates to happens. Secondly, the time between the dream and the event should be short. This is because the two linked by a coincidence increases as time as the time interval extends. Thirdly, the event should be one in which the circumstances of the dreamer seem improbable at the time. This is because personal hopes or fears could induce dreams. Fourthly, the description in the dream should be of an actual event. And fifthly, the details of the dream should tally with the details of the event. Mr. Barker was happy that some of the responses fulfilled all five of the criteria. Several of the dreams showed an undeniable resemblance to the disaster or parts of it. Afterwards, several of the dreamers claimed to be able to pinpoint the scene of their dream in pictures of the disaster that were on television or newspaper articles. None of the participants received sufficient advance warning to be able to prevent the tragedy and even if they were, it's unlikely that their concerns would have been taken seriously. Although several of the dreams mentioned the name Abavan. When taken collectively, Barker argued that a distinct pattern seemed to emerge from those claiming a premonition. The name Abavan, children, whales, valley, black pitch or mud, Welsh national costume, blackness, digging, screams, horror, an avalanche of black mud, buried houses, buried school were all mentioned. In addition, there were seven cases, four of men and three of women, who developed non-specific symptoms of acute mental and physical unease from four days to a few hours before the event. Symptoms of, were of high anxiety and that a disaster was about to happen and this was reported to others. Other symptoms included apprehension, depression and loss of concentration. Barker says that it's tempting to suggest that some people have the ability to become human seismographs in advance of major calamities. But Barker argues that there's no control to these people. I mean, how often would they experience such symptoms when nothing happens or when a country's at war? Barker adds that those that experience symptoms, their, their distress 
was in all instances apparently relieved upon hearing of the news of the disaster. Barker comes up with a term, pre-disaster syndrome, to explain how some of the participants claim that as soon as their symptoms go into action, news of disaster somewhere in the world will shortly be announced, although they were unable to predict where this would happen. Barker asks if there is some as yet unrecognised medical or psychosomatic syndrome that predicts a sympathetic projection of pain and grief, some sort of telepathic shockwave induced by the disaster. Barker asked the seven people to communicate with him immediately they have the same dreams or feelings again. But with millions of people in the country dreaming several dreams a night, it would be surprising if there were not a few predicting disasters of some kind or another. There had been concerns about the slag heats at Aberfan, and with the recent heavy rains it could have had a subconsciously affected people's thinking. Well, so ends the first of our stories. The second one is called The Ferry Boat in Ghost. The Ferry Boat Inn at Hollywell near St Ives. I think that's the St Ives in Huntingdonshire. It had the reputation of being haunted. It had been called the oldest haunted inn in England. If you Google the inn, there's page after page of summaries and references to the inn being haunted. There are videos about the ghost and photographs of the actual ghost, so it's very well documented. There are some amusing vi videos, one in particular of a, a deluded man staggering around in the dark, holding a one-sided conversation with a ghost. They're available on YouTube. Tony Cornell was a psychical research researcher for the Society of Psychical Research. He was a sceptic who, having taken part in hundreds of investigations, argued that there are some phenomena which cannot be explained by normal means. In his book Investigating the Paranormal, Cornell tells of how in March 1953, his girlfriend at the time, and another couple, had heard that there was a ghost of a white lady that appeared on the 17th of March every year at a nearby public house. As they were all keen psychical researchers, it seemed a good idea to celebrate St Patrick's Day evening at the Ferry Boat Inn at Hollywell, a small village on the River Ouse where the ghost was supposed to have appeared. Cornell was never quite sure where the story had originated or when he first heard of the story. But on Tuesday the 17th of March, the group with another friend, David Wright, drove to the pub. The landlord was absent, there was only a barman and a few locals. They were under the impression that uh, one of the flagstones in the main bar covered the grave of the White Lady. The flagstone was, all, was said to always been secure but on the 17th of March each year it became loose and it could be rocked if one stood on it. It was thought that the white lady could be seen on the 17th of March pointing at the flagstone as she stood in front of the old wood beam fireplace. Anyhow, Cornell and his group sat at a table nearest the flagstone and it was slightly loose that night and each of the group took turns stepping on it. A quarter to nine, they took a circular serving tray and they used it as a makeshift Ouija board. The alphabet was chalked around its edge 
and an upturned wine glass was used as a signaller. Within, within the next 45 minutes, the Ouija board had ascertained that a woman called Juliet had died at the place of the flagstone after being hanged. She had died at the spot before the inn was built. She was lonely and wanted help to find peace. It said that she hung herself, so she was a suicide. The locals and the barmen were joking with the group whilst they were doing their Ouija board research. Cornell and his friends made a spirit that they were presumably communicating with to continue to do so as they swapped venues and returned to the Blue Boar Hotel in Cambridge, 12 miles away, where they could get a late-night coffee. In there, they continued their Ouija board session. They managed to get contact again. Cornell said that whether it came from Juliet or their fertile imaginations, but they managed to obtain more information. Juliet was a Norman, whose name was Tusley. She had tried to appear, but her energy was not strong. She was 19 when she died on the 11th, in the 11th century, and her, Thomas was called, her lover was called Thomas Zul, a woodcutter who was 21 when she died, and who may have already been married. He eventually died when he was 52 years of age. Cornell made some inquiries amongst the older inhabitants of Hollywell, where the pub was, but there was no real interest in following up the story until he talked to the landlord of the ferry inn, or the ferry boat inn, who asked if he intended to carry out the investigations on the next year, on the 17th of March, as the landlord claimed that there was some interest in the case. So Cornell agreed to do his a Ouija board session again on the 17th of March 1954 and he began to organise the equipment that he might need. Reports of the preparations appeared first in the local press, then the national press and then the international press. The landlord was given an hour extension of his alcohol licence on the night of the 17th of March to allow the host to entertain a ghost there were a number of inaccuracies in the press stories as the media added its own take on the story. Cornell wrote a clarifying letter that was published in the Daily Cambridge News saying that the story had been misreported but the story by this time had taken off and it seemed to have a life of its own. On the 16th of March 1954 the Daily Mail ran a story about the pub extension as the white lady aged 900 years of age had promised to try to materialise. On the day of the 17th, Cornell and his team arrived at the pub at 5.30. And there were already 12 cars in the car park, mainly belonging to newspaper reporters. Every room at the inn had been booked for that night by the press. Cornell tried to explain that there was no proof that a ghost had been seen on the 17th of March during any year, and that he'd asked around the village and no one had heard of of anyone seeing a ghost and no one had been aware of the pub having a reputation of being haunted before Tony and his group had a Norwegian board session there the previous year. He explained it was this session where they got the information about Juliet Twosley, or Tuesley being buried under the flagstone. There were no written records of anybody called Tuesley or Zul and nothing that ever hinted that the inn was haunted. The newspaper reporters did not seem to want to hear this. They argued that the story must have some truth in it, 
All legends have some grain of truth. It seemed that Juliet Tuesley and Thomas Zoll had already become a journalist truth. By 8pm the bar had already become very crowded. Cornell had positioned his two tables over a flagstone in order to carry out an Ouija board session. By this time the police were turning away cars from the access road as there were no more parking spaces. And as Cornell was to later remark, the circumstances were about the worst possible for a serious investigation into the paranormal. It was after 11pm when the bar had cleared, although it was still full of reporters who were staying the night in the rooms that Cornell started his session. However, there were lots of people looking through the pub windows. The local vicar, the Reverend Pierce Higgins, had also arrived to witness proceedings. He gave a quote to the reporters saying that the legend was bunkum. No one had ever seen Juliet and no one ever will. And it was a sentiment that Cornell agreed with. The Ouija board session was conducted in darkness apart from ultraviolet lights that highlighted the teeth of those present clustered around. The Ouija board claimed that Juliet was present and she confirmed all the earlier information that she had provided. During the course of the session, Juliet mentioned a distance of 10 metres, metres not being a thing before the Napoleonic France in the late 19th century. She also said that she was trying to materialise and asked those present to join together. But there were no more messages and no more materialisations. It should be noted that all the questions asked by the investigators were asked in the presumption that the White Lady existed. They were all leading questions that would not be accepted in a court of law. A story was told that might fit the circumstances of a young woman buried, not in a graveyard, but under a flagstone in a remote inn. The story would not have been intentionally created, but the circumstances suggested a suicide, and the rumoured age of the pub, maybe 900 years, would have suggested the date during the Ouija board session. At 2am Cornell packed away his equipment and his team that his team had bought with them. He felt the night had not gone well. It was certainly not a serious attempt at a psychical investigation. However, the story of the White Lady went around the world and it seemed that, well the English speaking world, and it seemed that the legend had been made. Cornell started to receive letters asking for more information and the investigation that night would be the subject of stories in the press for some years later. A fictional account of the story appeared in the local press on the 15th of April 1955. The author was the local vicar, the Reverend Pierce Higgins, who called it the Spectre of Hollywell, and he made up a story based from Cornell's original Ouija board session, embellishing it with some of his own additions. Pierce Higgins claimed that because she was a suicide, she was buried with a stake in her heart at the crossroads of the river and the ferry. And a house was built over her unknown and unmarked grave. The story went on to describe how she lay in her grave undisturbed until about 1900, uh, when the innkeeper heard of buried treasure under the flagstone and dug to the depth of eight feet, but found neither treasure or Juliet. Pierce Higgins then gave slightly different accounts to different publications. Cornell asked why the Reverend Pierce Higgins should embroider a totally unsubstantiated story. 
Cornell saying that it was beyond his comprehension. Cornell refused to repeat his investigations for the 17th of March 1955 and beyond, but by this time the story was so entrenched that it was included in guides to haunted Britain, with a manifestation of the White Lady each 17th of March. This was accepted as an established fact by these publications. It is shown over the fireplace in the pub, where there are copies of newspaper reports on Cornell's visit in 1954. Tom Arnold was one of the locals that joked with Cornell on his first visit to the bar. And up, and up until the time, up until that time, he was unaware of the legend. But afterwards, Tom Arnold was recognised as an authority on the subject and was the man who everybody referred to until his death in 1994. Cornell returned to the pub and talked to Arnold during 1991. Arnold confirmed that he knew of no one that had actually seen Juliet and admitted that many people who had heard the story were prone to let their imagination play tricks on them. As Cornell was to say that if there was a haunting that was all in the mind, this was the case. Mark Alexandra, in his book, Haunted Pubs in England and Ireland, devotes two and a half pages to the ferry boat inn, saying that the White Lady is probably the longest established ghost in any English hostelry. As Cornwell says, it's not clear what evidence that he has for his suggestion, one can only presume that it's based on what Tom Arnold told him, and he quotes Arnold at length. Arnold saying, I've always known about the legend, but it was in the 1950s that we found out more about it. At that time, there was a lot of fuss about the Loch Ness Monster. The landlord, who had just taken over the ferry boat in pub, said he wished there was something like that here because it would be good for business. Why, I said, you've got the white lady right here on your premises. And I told him about the ghost that's supposed to be seen once a year on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day in the bar. Well, to cut a long story short, psychic research people and clairvoyants were invited here. One of them claimed to have made contact and gained the story of a ghost, and they got to know her name as Juliet Toosley. Alexander then devotes a page to an imaginative account of his own, perhaps based on Pierce Higgins' fictional contribution. Alexander goes on to provide details of Juliet's temperament, describing her as a passionate and strong world. He then goes on to describe Thomas's actions that day, writing that Thomas had been out drinking with his friends rather than returning Juliet's love, which made her so sad that she wanted to kill herself. Such a story, or an account, shows how unverifiable imaginative embellishments, unsupported by any evidence, can become incorporated into a legend as true facts. Alexander also reports there were, uh, there were reports of odd happenings, such as strange sounds and mysterious openings and closing of doors at the inn. He said that some dogs growl and bristle with fear at the bar. In other clichés are given, such as mysterious music, which can only be heard by women. Other publications then gave the story as invented by Alexandra. Cornell travelled with an Italian television company to the Ferry Boat Inn pub as they were making a series on ghosts. Cornell, Cornell was asked to help. Cornell explained that there was absolutely no evidence to uphold the legend, and the case was a perfect example of imaginative exaggeration causing someone to comment that somebody at some time must have seen the white lady, 
otherwise the story would never have been started. People that visit the modernised bar in the present time can read the framed newspaper articles on the war or take away a publicity flyers at the pub which tell the legend. Although the pub has now had a carpet, the flagstone has been left bare and the fireplace has been left untouched. Cornwall admits that he doesn't know how he came to hear of the story, but he's sure the myth was created after he and his other four young investigators went to the pub on the 17th of March 1953. Cornell thinks he heard the story from a Dr Hurst who lived in Cambridge. Subsequent investigations proved fruitless in trying to detect the source. Older inhabitants of the village had never heard of the story. Local history books printed pre-1953 had no references to the legend, and a doomsday book, or census of, nine, of 10, 6, 1086, gives the population of Hollywell as 26. So probably not big enough to sustain uh, a large enough group of people to have unmarried women chasing after married men. Anyhow, it's probable there was a Saxon settlement at the river crossing, but historic records only mention a church. Much of the wider area would have been water-covered marshland. There were some revisions to the story that Cornwell publicised from his Ouija board session at the pub in the Blue Ball Hotel. In particular, the date changed from 1052 AD to 1402 AD, as it was probably realised that the first date was too early for the claim of a Norman nationality, as they did not invade until 1066 although it could be claimed that 1402 would be a bit too late for someone to be claiming Norman nationality. Also, the name Juliet would not have been used in Norman England. The name Thomas is considered unlikely to have been used in England before the Norman Conquest, although it was increasingly common in the medieval period. Think of Thomas the Becket. Cornell goes on to criticise the story in other ways, but argues that he would like to emphasise two points. The first being the unreliability of any Ouija board message and the effect of the unconscious thoughts of the participants when recording the text of the session, the contradictions, the mistakes and half-spelt messages that are associated uh, and the associated revisions of the text when trying to make sense of it later and coming up with a story. Secondly, consider how the brief facts given in 1954 get added to and embellished into stories that are now considered true stories. If this case is a typical example, it must be wondered how many other cases of hauntings are really what they are claimed to be. It's said that the present-day visitors of the pub may have noticed the presence in the pub catching a vision of a woman white out the corner of an eye or imaginations taking over as the story gets embellished. This example of a pub haunting suggests that there may be many other public houses who encourage the idea of a ghost, just to add a unique selling point to attract custom. Anyhow, so ends our second story, and the third story coming up I've called Yellow Patches. Um, This story concerns the... East Sussex town of New Haven, which is a run-down urban area. I think it's got some personality. It's about 10 miles from Lewis, about the same distance from Brighton. There's a muddy river, the River Ouse, when the tide is out, there's lots of rusting derelict boats. 
I had a friend that moved from Brighton a few years back. He had a one-bedroom flat in Brighton and moved to a terrace three-bedroomed house in New Haven. He told me that New Haven was going to be developed into the gateway to Europe. Other friends still call it the a-hole of Britain. Anyway, I quite like New Haven. This short story comes from... It um, dates from... 1954 and it's called Yellow Patches, a collective hallucination. The account was sent to the Society of Psychical Research by Mr. Dennis Chesters, a solicitor who lived in Brighton. He wrote that on Sunday the 27th of December 1953 he drove to New Haven with a friend, a Miss M.P. Crowley, who was said to have come from a legal family and who lived at Rottingdean, a village between Brighton and New Haven. This account was published in the November 1954 journal for the Society of Psychical Research. Chesters and Crowley arrived in New Haven at 11am and stopped their car near the harbour wall. The sea level was about 10 feet below the top of the wall. Along the top of the wall were some white posts with wire to give protection to those using the promenade. The couple had been at the spot many times before and Miss Crowley left the car to get a better view of the New Haven Dieppe Ferry which was about a mile out to sea. Dennis stayed in the car with the door open facing the sea. Miss Crowley was standing a few feet away and she said, the lower part of your face is all yellow. He looked at himself in the car mirror and saw that it was the case. Then she remarked that his hand was yellow up to his wrist. Dennis then told her that the side of her face was yellow and she had a yellow circular patch on her coat. They both examined the yellow patch which did not change shape, the colour remaining constant and the yellow patch stayed in the same position when she moved. When Dennis moved his hand the colour did not disappear or travel up his arm, confirming that it wasn't a reflection. To their further amazement, they observed and remarked at the same time that the white posts on the harbour wall had also become yellow, from the base up to about half of their height. There was a clear, clear line of demarcation between the white and the yellow. The surface of the promenade at the base was normal. After about a minute, the yellow colour disappeared everywhere, almost instantaneously. During the experience, nothing else seemed out of the ordinary. On the return journey, they agreed that if either of them saw the shade of yellow that they had seen, they would tell each other. Unfortunately, there was no independent third party to verify what would appear to have been a hallucination. They said that they had not discussed anything likely to suggest the yellow phenomena, and they returned to the same place in similar conditions to try to repeat their experience without success. On their return on the day of their experience, they both independently wrote of their experience, although they did admit that they had discussed it at some length on their return journey. The colour had no significance to either of them, and if it was some sort of premonition, it's yet to be fulfilled. Dennis Chester made the following points. Firstly, the phenomena produced no ill effects, and they were both in good health. Their sight was otherwise unaffected. The colour did not follow the movement of the eye, it remained stationary and in place, so there was no evidence of reflection. The sun was shining, there was a slight mist, but neither of them had been dazzled.
The colour in his face was visible in the driving mirror of the car. The Society of Psychical Research asked further questions to each of them individually, which produced the following information. The notes that they'd made were written immediately after they returned from New Haven between 12.15 and 1pm at Mr Chester's flat. They both had an identical experience apart from Miss Crowley, who also observed a round patch on the upper part of the cliffs behind the car. Dennis was sitting facing the other way and she did not mention it until the trip home. Miss Crowley was wearing a camel hair coat, which presumably was a yellowy colour. On the way home they saw an advertisement for Lion's Cakes. The background was of a yellow similar in shade to the letters uh, to the colour they'd seen. And the letters for Lion's Cakes being a dark blue which was on top of the yellow colour. Neither of them had any medicines or sedatives before or at the time of their experience. This question had been asked because hallucinations of colour changes and colour patches were described in connection with certain toxic conditions, especially bromide poisoning. Mr Chesters and Miss Cranny were happy to talk about their experience, but were selective in who they chose to tell which the society commented that it was a view which would have been readily understood by those engaged in psychological research. The SPR, the Society for Psychological Research, concluded that they had appeared to have experienced a collective hallucination, of which the notable detail was a shade of yellow, which suddenly came and then disappeared on the same areas they were mutually observed do not seem to correspond or symbolise to any events to either of them. Well, that concludes the third and final story. Not that dramatic, I'm afraid. Uh, stories are not that scary or anything like that. So uh, I just thought I'd put in um, a paranormal episode or podcast I will be coming up with a couple of uh, more interesting stories later. I know this is going to have a record low download count, I should imagine. But thank you for listening. Thank you for Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.